Hello, and welcome to the show Gold Squadron Gaze. It's the podcast where two Star Wars-loving gays break down each episode of their favorite Star Wars TV shows, while also being gay as hell. I'm your host, Bradley Brower. I'm your other host, Charles Rogers, and how's that being on the reverse side of the time zone working out for you, Bradley? Honestly, it sucks. Like, I don't know how you manage to do this. Like, normally when we record, I'm on East Coast time, you're on West Coast time. And for that, I'm fine with being late at night and recording for me. Like, I, I after 10 o'clock, like, I can do that. Or after 9 o'clock for me, I can Because you're for done. You, you're, you're done. It, at right. that point, you're, like, going to go to bed immediately after. You're going exactly. to get debauched immediately after. But, like, you're done with everything you need to do for the day. And so being on this side of it, like, trying to finish up with work and hurry up so that you don't fall asleep is, like, the most bizarre thing to me. <laughs> right? Because when, when I was, I'm currently uh, between jobs, but when I was working over in Santa Monica, yeah, I used to have to, like, race home. Because especially when I lived in downtown, it was like this hour commute, hour and a half commute. I would have to basically get in my car and like pray I got home at a reasonable hour. But you seem to be uh, having an enjoyable time working. I will stress that you are working. You are not on vacation. Uh, Yes, I am working, uh, which is hard to work in paradise because it's not the it's not what you would think. Uh, I don't recommend it to people. If you're ever going to if anybody out there is ever going to go to Hawaii, um, do not go there to work. Go there to have fun because it is a different experience when you are working here versus when you are (laughs) actually on vacation. I promise. Oh yeah, absolutely. 100%. I've, I've had places too, where I've been, where I've been both been working in the place and then I've been when I've visited and they're two entirely different vibes. Well, before we dive into our uh, discussion on Andor episode six, the eye, uh, I'm just gonna claim my Mon Mothma minute here. And I'm just gonna talk about the fucking Senate outfit. Cause she's only in this episode for like two minutes. And I know this because I've watched that actually it's less than two minutes i've watched that clip probably three or four times now to get all my notes and i just gotta say that the fucking outfit that she's wearing is so perfect for the character like we've only seen her in white up to this point so if you're watching this in chronological order this is the first time we've got like the blue overcoat and it's almost like she's got like this outer layer on top of even the outer layer that she puts on when we're in the Senate chamber. And we'll get to the Senate chamber, but just the way her outfit has so drastically changed when she's in the senatorial environment is such a fascinating costume choice. Of course, we see the Imperial Signet there as well. It just, it lends her such a like politician air and I love it. I love it. That was your Mon Mothma minute. (laughs) No, that was pretty good. Um, I actually, I agree with you that that little bit, I mean, I know she's barely in the episode and honestly, the last like 20 seconds of the episode or whatever it is from her point to the end was probably part of the best parts of the episode. The, honestly. The, from Deidre forward where you're seeing like everybody realizing gradually. Yeah, and and we'll get to it when we, we get to my, I'm going to mention it when we get to my dislikes, uh, but we really just stay on Aldani the whole time. And at the end of it, we get to see like everybody reacting to the news. And it's such an interesting, like such an interesting diversion almost 
to where you know we spent all this time there laser focused on there and then we're like oh this is what everybody else was doing yeah it was really weird but we'll talk about it when we get there we'll talk about it when we get there yes do you want to do you want to take us in to and or episode six i hope you have an hd tv because uh we had a rings of power episode and uh andor episode both called the eye come out within a week of each other and not a mention of markian row not a mention of the eye of the nile nothing i am personally offended by this but you audience can negate my personal offense to this by listening to for light and dice a new uh actual play ttrpg podcast hosted by chris from dark side divas with myself hope molinex from j guys and jedi Jess from Rupert's Pod Race and our friends Nathan and Colton is a TTRPG set in the High Republic era. Episodes of the actual show are out now. It has sound effects. It has music by uh, someone named, I think, Gushkov is the name, uh, but it uses their High Republic soundtracks. Uh, I am told that there is like a NPR voice acting for some of the like newsreels. It's great. You should go listen to it. Anyway, that was me uh, doing one massively long High Republic segment that segued into a plug. Bradley, do you want to take us into the actual episode? Yes, let's talk about episode six titled The Eye. With cover from a spectacular local festival, the Aldani mission reaches a point of no return. Charles, what is one thing you liked about this episode and one thing you did like? Because I don't know if you can come up with something you I can I can. I have I have actually two. Uh, one thing I really liked about this episode is the way that it plays with the structure of the heist itself. And we're going to talk about this at multiple points. But the question I was going into looking into this is, does the heist rule hold up? And if you are not an active listener to Marvelous Divas, they mentioned this a lot on Marvelous Divas, or you haven't really listened to Gold Squadron Gaze before, I have the heist rule. And the heist rule basically says that if a piece of media has the characters discuss the heist, but don't show it to you right then, the heist will fail. But if the piece of media shows you the characters talking about it interspersed with the heist itself being performed, the heist will succeed up until the point that it stops intercutting them together. So the question was going to be that I got asked a lot this week was, is this going to follow this rule? And I loved what it I love what it did. I love how it played with our expectations. I love how the tension was there the whole time. There's a great break sort of from convention that I, I will specifically mention that I really love. This episode, I watched it at, at midnight with my boyfriend, and I was on the edge of my seat just like the whole time. Like I was an anxious, nervous wreck. My dislike was going to be that there was no serial in it which is, it felt weird that Cyril was in the two episodes before. But then I thought about two things. Uh, and the first thing I thought about was that it does make sense for him not to be in this episode, uh, just because we really want to focus on Aldani and the heist. And something irked me even more, which was the comments about how overweight the Commandant is were kind of unnecessary. Like there's a little thing in there where he can't like get his belt over and the implication is like, we've well, grown so fat off the people of Aldani. And I was like, the episode was doing such a good job of showing that colonialist like exploitative mindset. You didn't have to throw that in there. Uh, I didn't like that the, the commandant like 
ends up like having a heart attack. Uh, that's just rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, so that's going to be my thing I disliked because I felt like we could have done without that a little bit. Um, the episode was perfectly fine without those things or or the heart attack itself could have been done a mildly different way. That was my couple of things. Bradley, what about you? One thing you liked, one thing you didn't. So one thing I liked about the episode, uh, obviously, were the visuals. I mean, I just, Jesus Christ, the fucking eye itself. Like, that. every scene that they did the eye oh, was we'll, so we'll, cool. we'll get to that. We'll um, get to that. Yeah, but that was the one thing I really loved. The other, I mean, the other kind of thing that I really loved was just the tension of the episode. I felt like this, because it was the heist episode, you know, it genuinely had a lot of tension in this, um, in the entire episode, which was really nice. Because I was never at a point where I was really bored or I was like, oh, they're just kind of filling in this part before the action starts or something like everything had a purpose. It felt like at least to me um, when you're talking about that stuff. And then the only thing I didn't really like about the episode was the shoehorn of everything at the end. I mean, I like that they kept the high separate from that stuff, but it ju- it did feel weird that they threw that stuff in there. I almost felt like that would have been a better cold open for the next episode and just like not even show us those people. It, I Even though I really, really, really love the ending, I just feel like that that might've served better as a cold open for the next episode. It will, it will depend a lot, I think, once we're able to see the episode. And that's sort of the problem with these things coming out week to week, as opposed to all dropping at once, is we kind of have to take them as they are. On Aldani, Cassian speaks with Nemec about the upcoming mission. Nemec confides in Cassian about being nervous, despite his faith in the rebellion. And while Cassian doesn't share his idealism, Nemec is grateful he is here. Wow, Nemec just has death flags for days, huh? <laughs> like Honestly, in retrospect. Yeah, I think we were, you know, I'm, I am proud of us, though, that we were really smart about who was going to die, like, leading up to this, because it just I think, was so... I think you got it perfectly. I got I it perfectly. I was mad about that, actually. I when genuinely I, got it perfect. Somewhere somewhere in the Divas Discord, I think I actually did say, I fucking hate that Bradley completely called who was going to live and who was going to die. And I'm going to have to hear his smug ass talk about it on the podcast this week. Well, you know, what's funny is towards the end of the episode, I thought I was going to be wrong. I genuinely thought they were going to go a different way with the thing. And I was like, I was genuinely going to be surprised that I didn't know who was going to live and die at the end of this. But watching this back again, I'm like, um, they were giving us the red flags of everybody who was going to die from the very beginning. Like it was just very obvious. Oh yeah. Yeah. In hindsight, looking back at it, it's one of those things you look back and you're like, ah, yes, yes. And Nimic's not the only one, but this partic- this scene particularly stuck out to me because of just the way he talks so much. And it's like this very nervous like energy. And he's like, he's the idealist, right? He's the one with faith in the rebellion. And he talks about, you know, I have faith in the rebellion, I have faith in the cause, you know, why am I nervous and you're not? And he's just going on and on and on. And it's like, yeah, that you're... You're done, dude. You're done. Uh, I do think that what's interesting about the scene, though, is is it communicates to us where Cassian currently is with regards to the Empire. Because I think Luthen was probably more right than Cassian or anyone wanted to give him credit for. That Cassi- Cassian never really says, like, I don't want to fight the Empire. He just doesn't believe in Nemec's idealism. 
So I think that exchange where it's, he basically, what, what was it? What is it that he says? I didn't write it down. But he basically says, like, do I look like I'm just taking it or something like that? And Nimic's like, no, love that little exchange because it's like, OK, no, Cassian does actually want to rebel a little bit. He just doesn't know how. And Nimic is sort of too much on the idealist extreme. And there's someone else who's too much on the, the pragmatist extreme. But we'll get to him a little bit later. Right. And I think Cassian makes a good point, though, because Nemec, like, Nemec is only coming from the thing that, like, well, everybody's oppressed, so obviously you have to be mad about being oppressed, and Cassian's like, do you think I don't notice that I'm being oppressed? Like, you don't think that I don't see it? Like, obviously I see it, and obviously I want to do something about it, but not everybody wants to do something about it and risk their life. I think that's what he's kind of saying, is that, like, you don't, like, I just because I know what's happening doesn't mean I have the power to do anything, and I feel like sometimes Cassian does get into that rut of well, I don't want to put myself out there because then I could get in trouble or I could get killed or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's getting trouble and getting killed for like ideals that bothers him, I think, where he's like, oh no, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to go out and get like, put myself in danger when it benefits me or I could just poke the empire's eye a little bit. Like there's this sliding scale between Nemec and somebody else and Nemec's on the high idealism side of it. So he's far more idealistic than Cassian is. And I think, you know, Nemec's kind of pulling him a little bit that direction. And I, I dig the relationship between these two. This is, this has been so interesting. This is why we needed three episodes of this. Because it, it really dives into the relationship between Cassian and Nemec, Cassian and Skeen. Like, it's, it, it's been so good. And this is a good capstone for that. Because this is the, there's one more little conversation we'll have about backstories. But this is you know, one of the major turning points is right here, this conversation with Nimic and, and Cassian. So this was a good moment before we start moving down to actually begin the heist. At the Imperial base, Commandant Bihaz briefs his fellow officers about how the Empire managed to manipulate the indigenous Dani people. Lieutenant Gorn reports that the Empire's policy has reduced the number of pilgrims over the years. And when Colonel Pedigar asks Gorn if the locals will permit them to use their valley for military purposes, Gorn concedes that the locals will have no choice. Later, Bihaz warns Gorn that everything must go perfectly tonight. So you want to talk about who's playing uh, Commandant uh, J-Hold Bihaz and Colonel Pedigar? Yeah, so let's talk about Bihaz for a second. So um, he's played I by these Stan names. He's played by Stanley Townsend. Um, and I have two notes about what he's been in because it was really funny to me when I was looking him up. The first thing is that he was uh, a couple different voices in Cars 2. I think that's very important. One, because it's technically almost a Disney trifecta. And then two, because Cars 2, like if you're going to be in anything that's Disney, like Cars, really the worst thing that Disney's ever made in the last 10 years. Not to not to him, because obviously he got that paycheck, but like it's just right. really funny that Cars- The money goes the in the bank account regardless. Oh, absolutely. I mean, shit. If, if somebody came to me and was like, hey, do you want to do a, a voice in Cars 16? Absolutely, I would say yes, because money. But- not because I like cars, because I think it's one of the worst things Disney's ever done. But the second thing, though, he was randomly in, which I thought was really funny, is one of my favorite movies of all time, which is uh, Amanda Bynes in What a Girl Wants. 
and he's randomly in that movie for like a split second and i know exactly the scene he's in um i just thought it was really funny that he was in that movie in a very small role but he was also in that movie so now if you Good if you go out Lord, there and watch this dude has been in a lot of things he's been in a lot of things but those two things stuck out to me so i just wanted to mention them but i don't know if there was anything that stuck out to you uh there was actually uh for my 2013 2014 ish tumblr girlies out there um he was Angelo in the first episode of Sherlock. So uh, if you had the misfortune to be on Tumblr in that era, you know the restaurant scene from Steady and Pink. He is Angelo from the restaurant scene in Steady and Pink. That was the only thing that stuck out to me that I, but I'm scrolling through this and he's been in so much. Yeah, there was just too much. Stuff. If you guys really want to know, you can look up his IMDb. There's just, he is, it's a lot of stuff. He's one of those ones that's just been in so so much uh what about our not orson krennic yeah i saw that i was like well unfortunately you weren't uh you're not gonna get not orson correct this about week. this yeah well you can tell us about him since you were so gung-ho on it being orson krennic all right so colonel pedigar who is our engineer is being played by a gentleman named richard katz he also almost has a disney trifecta uh because he is the one-legged prisoner in Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm, so, <laughs> okay. I'm scrolling through his IMDb to see if he has if a Disney, Disney film, uh, which it does not appear that he has. So one leg short. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Yep. That's yeah, it's the only though. thing, only thing I recognize him from is he's the one-legged prisoner uh that Rocket steals the the leg from in Guardians of the Galaxy. I I find it just interesting from like a thematic perspective, right? That they're basically like, well, we want to make sure that only the most devoted to their like culture, Donnie's, are in this valley, neglecting to realize that the problem with that is that the Donnie's you have brought close to your base are the most devoted to their own culture. Like the level of like a lack of understanding, the way that this guy, the way that B has talks about the indigenous people of Aldani is like some of the most disgusting, like just out and out shit that I've ever heard an Imperial say in this franchise, where he talks about how dumb they are. He talks about how easy to manipulate they are. He talks about how prideful they are. He talks about how they can't like think multiple thoughts at once. And I'm like, wow, we're really, really given like British colonialism, huh? We're just going all the way with this. Okay. The show is not subtle. No, and it's and I think they did a really good job though, because one of the things they do show is his kind of dealing with the native people. And then you kind of do that with Gorn on the other side, where Gorn is kind of like, he's pretty good about i mean he even knows the language at one yep. point like he's clearly very devoted to his job to the point where he like even if he is for the empire to an extent he at least is respectful of the people who are there to as much as he can be because he knows like they are impeding on their space but i like that he also on the other hand knows like doesn't matter how nice he is to these people like the empire is going to do what the empire is going to do and like he says they're not going to have a choice when they decide to expand the airfield and destroy the basically the planet essentially to do this exactly and it's also like keeping in mind behals behas has also been there for seven years 
Gordon makes reference to serving under Bihas for seven years. Bihas has never bothered to learn the language. He's never bothered to like figure anything out. He's just there to exploit them. And they're just like stupid people that he can like push around to him. So I love the way that they're handling like the way the Imperials interact with the local peoples, both on Ferrix and on Aldani, I think is really interesting. Back with the Rebels, Skeen tells Cassian that Terramin was a former stormtrooper and that Cinta lost her family to stormtroopers. As pilgrims arrive on the route, comets begin firing through the sky, beginning the Eye of Aldani. Lieutenant Gorn orders the garrison to welcome the pilgrim. After reaching the Aldani base, Andor and his fellow rebels remove their Aldani robes and pose as Imperial Army troopers welcoming the pilgrim. Elsewhere, Bihaz struggles to fasten a belt on his uniform. He asks his wife, who is dressing their son, for help, but she says he is just getting fat. Yeah, which I didn't I didn't like that. <laughs> well, we you wanna like you wanna talk about that scene first so we can get it out of the way. Um no, we'll go we'll go in chronological order. Okay. Uh, so Terraman was a stormtrooper, which explains everything. I couldn't figure out what his backstory was supposed to be other than that he was just some leader. Like, I don't well, know what ass. it was. Yeah, an and asshole. it's like, what was his thing? But now it all kind of makes sense that he was a stormtrooper. So yeah, of course, he was just a jerk. Yeah, and I like how, like, they don't provide any reason he defected. They don't provide any explanation beyond he was a stormtrooper and now he is not a stormtrooper. As we're seeing from this, stormtroopers are slightly more elite than your average grunt, which I know is slightly ridiculous watching other pieces of media, but that's how it's supposed to be. And so for this guy to have become a stormtrooper, gone through, like, the education, we see in the Servants of the Empire books that the stormtrooper education is essentially a brainwashing. And this guy, whatever whatever Terraman saw convinced him to just walk away from that, which I, you know, that's all the backstory we need. Short, sweet, yeah. and to the point. I'm glad they didn't go too much into it because I think that that would have taken away from how just brief they were with it. They were just kind of like, nope, he just doesn't want to be a part of the Empire anymore. And that's that's it. That's just what He's happens with some of these people. Yeah. Uh, speaking of really quick backstories, uh, Cinta's whole village got like wiped out by stormtroopers. Yeah, I was like, uh, damn, okay, well, what happened in that story that we're not getting all of a sudden? Yeah, and it's it's going to inform everything else that Senta does for the rest of the episode. And it's like, we'll get, we'll come back to that note in a second. I do want to point out that we haven't warranted stormtroopers. This episode will be the first time we see stormtroopers, and they are very brief. Oh, wait, when do we see, oh, is it in the very end? Nope, I will tell you, because oh, I noted it. I didn't, uh, I didn't catch that. Bradley just went through, like, a whole face journey. Like when I said there were stormtroopers in this episode, he was like, what? Oh, wait, uh, what? Ew. Like my life flashed before my eyes. I was like watching the whole episode in my head in three it seconds. Just briefly like, watched <laughs> the episode. Like, <laughs> Uh, no, I don't remember. I just want to point out that we we still haven't warranted the official attention of stormtroopers. That has not happened yet. Uh, yeah. So, Senta has not been, like, drilling and training with the other. She's been, we've only ever seen her as, like, bandaging the wounds. And it turns out that the reason that Senta has not been drilling with the others is because she is already a stone-cold badass. Who, when those Imperial troopers walk up when they're hiding in and the trooper walks up to like take a piss uh she she's gun out immediately oh yeah she's like, about she, to take him out she it is about like... to take them all out and Bella's be like no 
no, no. But learning that her family and her friends were all wiped out, not just by the Empire, but by the stormtroopers themselves, that's a really, really important, like, looking at how she's been acting up to this point, realizing that she's more experienced than a lot of the other people and also like oh no she's not just like the group medic she's actually one of the most dangerous people in it the quiet ones always are you know i i, I was definitely that's getting a it. weird vibe from her and i was like what is it about her that makes her so dangerous and that's what it is she's the quiet one she's the essentially she's the rogue she is that person who can sneak up on you and you would never know until you're dead we all thought she was the cleric but she's actually the rogue to put it in extremely nerdy dnd terms dnd &D terms there you go she is the secret rogue of the group she's the rogue uh i want to i want to take a little brief break here uh jump over to the scene where they uh the little messed up family scene that they have um we have two new characters introduced uh robota Bihaz and Leonard Bihaz. Do you want to tell us who's who's playing these characters, Bradley? Well, never mind. I'm I'm going to do it apparently. Yep, you did. Uh, so Ro Robota Bihaz, I really struggle with that name. Robota Bihaz is played by Michelle Duncan. She's got uh, a decent amount of credits, mostly one-off episodes of TV series. She's in an episode of Doctor Who. Uh, that's the only thing on here that I recognize. Leonard Bihaz is being played by a kid named Alfie Todd. And Bradley, I want to take you through my journey. Are you ready? Take me through the journey because I had the same journey when I was watching the episode, it but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Absolutely insane because we know, you know, Nina Gold casted both this and Game of Thrones. And uh, so whenever I see someone I recognize, I just sort of assume that they were also in Game of Thrones at this point. So I see this kid. And I'm like, this kid is painfully familiar to me. What was he in Game of Thrones? Because he obviously had to be something in Game of Thrones. And I thought maybe it might be Robin Aaron, like a grown -er, more grown-up Robin Aaron. I think because the kid is sickly. I was like, oh, they must have gotten the same sickly kid. This is not the case. Alfie Todd was in A Song of Ice and Fire thing, but it's actually House of the Dragon. If you remember in episode four of house of the dragon spoilers this, for house of the dragon spoilers for house of, well i'm gonna say this in a way that doesn't spoil the best part of the scene in episode four if you remember the scene where rhaenyra is hearing her various marriage proposals when she's sitting on the throne it's right at the start of the episode alfie todd plays willem blackwood aka that blackwood kid you know the one that i'm talking about <laughs> if you watch yeah that's this guy got it he only has six credits if you look at episodes of tv as separate credits but they are bangers like this kid's been in some great he's been in his dark materials he's been in house of the dragon he's been in andor uh yes so that is where i recognized him from was house of the dragon i mean we don't have this but he is our rebel of the week i guess or something because he is so cool he's got all these he doesn't credits. want to, oh yeah he also he doesn't want to wear his imperial he's like i'm not gonna wear that <laughs> literally um, i was like he's already a, a, a budding uh rebel because he's just like mm, yeah i'm not wearing that dad and then the mom's just like oh he's 
he's obviously sick, honey. Like, he can't do this. No, he's not. I like how he's very obviously faking being sick. Like, this kid is a little shit. Um, but what I like is that the scene does establish the reason why he's a little shit, right? And why all this happens, because his dad's a piece of shit, and then he's a piece of shit, and then his mom doesn't like his dad. It's, like, very, like... Uh, just, oh, it's like his a, mom is, like, extremely... No, this family's extremely fucked up, and that's what I love about it. For sure. We saw last episode we saw that like the uh, the wife had gotten soldiers to come up and move the furniture around. So we looked at that and we was like, oh, that's just a case of like imperial corruption. And no, it's just that this family is extremely out of touch and thinks that's fine. Which even the short scene that we get with them is just so interesting of like a sequence to demonstrate how messed up this family is. And also to kind of endear us to them a little bit, just because like it helps when we view the characters as actual people even if we go you are an extremely shitty person right because later on we'll see them as quote-unquote hostages so it's nice that we care about them slightly just so that we feel like oh they might actually be in real danger they might actually be you know oh there's not quote-unquote they are just straight up hostages i i did double check um house of the dragon was not cast by nina gold oh well but you have to there is some kind of incest there because obviously the shows are similar yes you just wanted to make an incest joke because of House yes of the because it's so fucking bad on look, the show now look she uh, there's people like oh we can go into no no we can, we're not doing we can, we're not we can, doing this. oh mm. we're not doing uh you guys you guys should House hear our gay or whatever we're gonna call it <laughs> You guys should hear our pre-episode meetings. It's ugh. we're not gonna do gay dragon podcast um, <laughs> because clearly this is I don't know. That's all I could think of the name for that. Uh, that Kate one. Kate Road James is apparently the person who cast House of Dragons. So there's your fun fact of the day. No, I I like this little scene. I like how shitty the family is. I think that uh, both Robota and Leonard actors acquit themselves very well in just the small amount of time they have us to kind of make us hate these characters, but also kind of make us like these characters. So I was really pleased by this scene. I thought this was a really neat, really neat scene. Up next, the leader of the Pilgrims greets Gorn at the base Cassian and his fellow rebels arrive where Gorn assigns them to serving as bodyguards for the commandant and his family. Meanwhile, Vel and Cinta don diving gear and swim through the river under the base's dam. Meanwhile, Commandant Bihaz and his family receive a hide of goat skin from the leader of the pilgrims. While Vel and Cinta infiltrate the imperial base, the commandant and his family attend the ceremony with the leaders of the pilgrim. During the ceremony, Vel orders them to go ahead with the mission over the calm. So it's a goat skin for the pilgrims, not not from them. They're giving them a goat skin in return for a three-year lease on the land. I wouldn't get to stop you in the middle of that recording, uh, but you did get that word wrong. What what did I say? You said uh, they get a goat skin from the the Donnie. They give they ex- a goat skin. They exchange to... one. Real? Oh, yes. shit, you're right. It's like a ceremonial thing. They exchange it. Yeah, no, you're right. And I then completely... at the end, he burns it because he's like, fuck these people. And then, like, I mean, even though it's technically I completely forgot. Yeah, no, because I watched it again, but yeah. it's kind of like blink and you miss it. I forgot that they also get one from the Donnie as well. Right, because he's like, ew, it smells. Like, I don't want to deal with this. But then Well, we that's in the one. that's yeah. in the initial scene. Where he's still like, right. oh, God, it smells. We're going to give it to him. And then we have a little bit of, like, the fucking colonialist racism where he's like, oh, yeah, their sense of smell is just more acclimated to these things. And I'm like, fuck you, motherfucker. Um, I also uh, like how he translates to, he mistranslates, I'm sorry, uh, in this scene. Oh, yeah. Because one, of course... 
Gordon speaks Donnie, he was in love with a Donnie woman. Like that makes complete sense. But yeah, um, when they're initially walking up and the guy's like, uh, the chieftain is like, um, uh, what is it? May the eye stay open long enough to find some goodness in you. And I'm like, okay. And then of course, during the exchange scene, he's like mistranslating it. Uh, or he's, yeah, he's he's altering, which I think is hilarious. Do you want to talk about who the, uh, the chieftain is? Who's playing the chieftain? No, go ahead and tell us who that is. Uh, so the chieftain is being played by, uh, it's just credited as the chieftain, being played by David Heyman. David Heyman is quite a prolific career. Nothing I really recognize, but I want to shout him out because a lot of the actors in this, like, are very accomplished actors and have been in this game for a long time. Like, they are finding some truly incredible people to be in this. He almost fooled me for a second because he's in a TV movie called Avenger. Oh, so he's a false trifecta again or a cl- uh, almost real almost one false trifecta um but i'm looking through his filmography and i i don't see anything that i recognize but i just wanted to shout him out because he's he's had a pretty long career he's been acting since 1966 when when they first have their exchange with the donnie and the first few meteors are flying overhead uh before the exchange did you notice that nemec looks up at the meteors everyone else keeps looking forward but nemec looks up i mean it would be kind of hard not to i can't like blame him because later on in the episode we do see that it's very hard not to look at it oh yeah yeah it's it would be hard for me not to look at it too i do feel the need to point out that 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 is a real dam that is not cgi uh that is an actual on location dam that they used i believe it is in the scottish highlands uh but that's not cgi'd on there that's an actual like location and again you can tell because yeah, it feels can, like a real place that's one thing i like about this arc of episodes is that they felt like they were truly on location the entire time and it was not in the volume now that's not anything against the volume but it was very clear that this was on location the entire in the scottish highlands or if not Somewhere very mountainous. Wherever it was, it was very pretty. I think I read that it was the Scottish Highlands, but I didn't double check before we started recording. Right, but it was gorgeous and it it really set the scene the entire time because you felt like they were genuinely walking from one place to another. They felt like they had to like, it was almost like damp at moments where you were like, oh, it's probably like moist there or some kind of wetness there. You can feel the humidity in the actor's clothes and in the air around them, like so so breathtakingly like beautiful uh speaking of things that are beautiful the underwater shot of Cinta and bell approaching the dam where the meteors fly over them holy shit holy shit the cinematography and this is so fucking good um i also love that uh they not only again i mean i know they showed it in the like the previous scene where they were hiding under the rock but like it's very clear like if you didn't believe they were together before i i implore you to watch this episode because every scene they're in together they are constantly looking out for each other constantly touching constantly like next to each there's other, a like, big were... moment that we'll get to right we'll get I, to I the just... big moment but i just love that they're together the entire episode because it shows us 
how good of a team they are together and how much of a couple they really are because they had to work very closely. I I need to know what these two's deal is immediately. Toronto. Like I, I make, need I was gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna predict now that because I mean I can't say spoiler alert because y'all watch the episode, but because they survive at the end of this, um, we will be getting more of them, if not in Andor, we will be getting more of them together somewhere else because I think they're such an interesting character pair. Like I need to know more. I need to see like maybe they have a separate team somewhere else later on in the rebellion. There's several shots from the trailer that haven't happened yet. There so you go. I, I want to note here for the heist rules, for people that are following along and trying to get my take on the heist rules. I want to note here that the plan is already going mildly awry because Vel and Senta are not checking in at the appropriate time. So right off the bat, we've discussed the plan. Right off the bat, the plan is going off schedule right from the beginning. They managed to kind of pull this section off, but I do need to note here. Uh, and speaking of them being behind, I love the fact that Vel hesitates because she is constantly pushing forward, except when she's directly confronted by something in the face. Because we have seen this before, before. We saw this with Luthen in her very first scene when she was like gung-ho against Cassian and then Luthen just starts yelling at her and she shuts down immediately. And I think that's an interesting beat to have her, the nominal leader of the team, be the one to hesitate at pulling the final trick. And I want to mention the scene where she is with Cinta on Dam. They did such a good job characterizing this. Like, so they have so far to this point, they have been pushing Vel as the leader, right? And if now that we know that Vel and Cinta are in a relationship, clearly. Are 100%. They Absolutely are no denying that. Right. You can see that Vel outwardly and to other people errs on the side of I'm the leader, I'm in control all the time. But what we don't see is, at least in this relationship, Cinta is her rock. Cinta is the person who is going to convince Vel to do things and to like be strong. And she's that person for her. And you can see that when she's hesitating. And oh my God, the acting, first of all, for Vel. Oh. In this scene is so good when she's hesitating and then Cinta tells her like no like you need to commit to this now say yes let's go like that shows me that one that's how strong of a couple they are first of all and then two just the sheer the acting of this was so fucking good I can't I have to give her props because it was so good oh uh, everything the chieftain says is metal as fuck I just I have to I have to throw that out there and him just tossing the goat skin into the fire like yeah obviously you people your promises mean nothing your gifts mean nothing fuck you i i love that i love that for him while the comets begin to fall vel and Cinta climb down the dam cassian and his team enter the base with bihaz and family once inside cassian seals the entrance and the rebels ambush bihaz and family forcing them down on the ground at gunpoint colonel pedigar points a gun at nemec and demands that the rebels release the sun andor tries to calm the situation but Cinta shoots pedigar from behind taking him out outside gore tells a soldier that he and his men can rest for the night so here's where we need to talk about the heist rules because this is where the subversion comes into play and it is a beautiful delicious subversion because they did tell us the plan before we did the heist but they neglected to mention some key details about the plan namely the fact they were going to take the family hostage. Which is interesting, because I would define this as the moment where the heist goes off the rails. Not because the heist goes off the rails in-universe, they're pulling everything off perfectly, but for us, 
the audience, this is a major oh shit moment because you do not see it coming. Yeah, it's like they neglected to tell you that this was part of the plan when clearly it was. But I'm wondering oh, from if, the beginning. I'm wondering if like we're in this situation, we're supposed to be Cassian. Like we're supposed to be knowing things from Cassian's point of view, not from everybody else in the group's point of view, because they have known the plan for a lot longer than Cassian has. He sealed the he sealed the door. He right. there was no hesitation here. He knew that this was part of the Okay. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting because it takes it off the rails in a way that most heists don't take things like completely off the rails like this. Because at this point, we don't know half the plan. Like clearly there's elements to this. Like also they they shut off the communication, but they leave the Alkenzie airbase section open like they they leave that particular line open because they're going to need it to pop open the like the credits in the vault later but like this is the moment we realize oh this was like not just a heist this was a kidnapping and it it adds a new level of tension because now the question is like, what are they going to do with the family? Who else is going to... And then like Partigar? Uh, I almost want to call him Partigast because that's the other guy. Because that's Pettigar, the other guy, yeah. Pettigar gets himself shot by Senta who just no hesitation guns him down. Like, just shoots him. Because she doesn't have time for bullshit. She knows she what the plan is. She does not have time is. for bullshit. Yeah. Uh, love, the, love this twist. Love this twist. This... I <laughs> lost my fucking mind when this happened i like the juxtaposition uh so throughout this entire heist we will see the rebels inside doing the heist but then we will also occasionally cut back to the donny and the donny it should be noted are rebelling as well in their own way that them having their cultural festival in spite of the empire is their own form of rebellion and pushback against the colonialist mindset of the empire and i think it's interesting what this episode has done is jumped back and forth between those two where it shows the rebels fighting against the empire and then it also shows like the native people the donny also pushing back in their own way i think that's a cool cool juxtaposition vel demands that bihaz unlock the vault he reluctantly allows the rebels to enter the base Andor and his comrades disarm the guards and imperial technicians at gunpoint the rebels disable all communications except for the one at al kenzie air base the imperials have their mouths and hands bound in the command room, Vel tells Behaz to cooperate or they will kill his family. She promises to spare them if they cooperate. Anyway, gay. Gay. <laughs> uh, I love it. Yeah, so this is this is where we get the scene. Uh, this is my only note for, for this section. Uh, but this is where we get the scene where, like, Vel and Cinta have their little moment where they, like, clasp hands and stand very close together and stare lovingly into each other's eyes and i'm sitting here going if you didn't know before you know now okay <laughs> i hope you picked it up by this point i uh, mean the the lesbian kiss in uh rise of skywalker has nothing on this relationship okay that doesn't count <laughs> that doesn't count this this would be much harder to edit out it, no, I, I'm sure it was. It, you know what this was giving me? This was giving me um, Sailor Moon uh, American edited version vibes where like they're not lovers, they're cousins. No. Or whatever bullshit Sailor Moon tried to do in the English dub. Not the Sailor Moonification of Benton. So Benton, so Sinta and Mel, Jesus Christ. I, I can't with your ass. No, and and there's there, you know there's certainly conversations to be had about representation. We have plenty of them on this show, and I think that even if the characters haven't you know 
done anything like this is the most physical they've gotten with each other we haven't seen like a kiss or a confirmation or any sort of you know that we are definitely girlfriends line of dialogue i think this is some of the best you know representation we've seen and certainly in live action star wars uh, and definitely some of the most explicit representation that we've seen and and there's conversation on whether or not you know does it go far enough uh could it have gone a little bit further thus far and i think yeah probably uh however it is not subtle and it is continuing to be a step in the right direction so i'm 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 very delighted to see them here uh, having this little moment of tenderness in between the taking hostages and threatening to kill a child. So sweet. So sweet. You know what? Leave it to lesbians to have a very beautiful romantic moment. Because they get shit done. (laughs) They get shit done because they are better at this. They know exactly what they're doing. When Imperial Officer Kimsey notices that the communications are down, another Imperial soldier believes that the I.L. Dani is interfering with the communications. The rebels proceed deeper into the base with the captive Bihaz. Screen orders several Imperial soldiers to assist with loading the payroll register while Bihaz unlocks the vault. The rebels force the Imperials at gunpoint to load large cylinders containing the sector payroll onto a parked freighter. I have to wonder how much the little like game that they're playing was worked into the plan. Like, did they know people were going to be there to load stuff in? Because in hindsight, they had to have known. There was no way they were going to load that stuff onto the freighter in like nine minutes by themselves. Yeah, I'm wondering if Gorn knew this. Like, I I feel like this had to be part of the plan where he was like, hey, so I know that the, boy, the boys like to play poker every night, you know, or whatever when they're not, not working that hard. So I, like, I, they're I, all going to be there. I tried to see what it was. It didn't look like Sabak to me. It looked like something else, but sorry, continue. But yeah, no, 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 I, I agree. I, I think it's, it's just some card game, but it was interesting or they're just betting or just fucking around because they're just like, they know that everybody else is fucking off watching the eye and they're just, they're kind of there for no reason. So I guess he, I think Gorn would have known that they're just fucking around anyway. Back in the command center, Sinta dons an Imperial officer's uniform while the intercom receives a transmission about a breach in the vault. Sinta switches off the transmitter and the lights. Outside, the pilgrims sing and worship in Donnie. Suspicious about the base's lights and transmitter shutting down, Corporal Kimsey leads several Imperial Army soldiers down a flight of stairs into the vault. So I find it interesting that that one of the flaws in the plan that they didn't realize uh, was they mentioned at the start of the episode that they're using Imperial like imperial tech to have their comms work and they're doing it on a different frequency but the imperial tech is better than theirs so it might pick it up i i like that there's elements of this that they didn't anticipate because like we said in the last episode if they didn't have cassian there were massive holes in this plan like this would have bombed spectacularly uh good to note that Sinta is in fact in an imperial uniform uh and is going to sneak out Yep, we knew, I see, I knew there had to be a way for her to get out of this live, that would be it. Which is interesting, because again, how much of that was part of the plan? Because she dons that Imperial uniform while things are still going relatively well for the heist. Before shit hits the fan and a bunch of people die, she's already donning this. So I think the plan was for always for her to stay on Aldani. Yeah, I don't know why, but I I like that one. It's the only way she survives, and then two, I I just like that she goes from. I mean, I'm my assu- my assumption is towards the end of the episode. I'll just skip a little bit, but she she wears the uniform to escape, and then I'm assuming she disappears by going into the crowd of pilgrims at some point and changing back into a pilgrim kind of outfit, and that's how she 
inevitably gets out yeah presumably because we like i mentioned earlier there are shots of her in the trailer she does appear to be on aldani still uh and she is not wearing the imperial uniform okay apparently we didn't talk about corporal kimsey last time i'm being informed by our producers meaning just bradley yeah uh, so i i guess did he show up in the about... last episode he was in the last episode that was why i was like did we did we talk to him no so already? okay let's talk about him because he's very important so he's played by nick blood people that is know a him. fucking sick ass name it is a sick ass name and he is uh, a very prolific actor because he is an agents of shield and he is playing lance hunter which is one of the main members of the team in the first couple seasons of uh, agents of shield so he is very important in that aspect but that means he's a major marvel person and he's also um also in the Star Wars thing, so now we're just waiting for him to be in a Disney thing, and then we'll be yep. good to go on him. It doesn't appear he's been in a Disney thing. Not yet, uh, but we're close. Oh, interesting. So it, he's been in a couple of interesting things. Uh, he's been in Euphoria. He plays the character of Gus. I don't know who that is, uh, because I don't watch Euphoria, but I know a lot of people do. Uh, he was in Dragon Age Inquisition as Hall the Archer. Let yeah, me I was look hoping up. You, I was hoping you weren't going to see that, so I was trying to gloss over this, but he's done the multiple voices in multiple games, so I just, fuck, I didn't want you to read that. Okay, yeah, well, here's, here's the thing, Bradley, is apparently, if my TikTok numbers are to be believed, people really like when I talk about Dragon Age, so I'm going to talk about that now. No, it, it looks like uh, Nick Blood was the voice of one of the multiplayer protagonists for um, the multiplayer component of Dragon Age Inquisition because they randomly shoehorned that in. So he's he's in the base game, but he won't speak. Let's talk about how fucking beautiful the eye is when it actually happens. Oh yeah, okay, we can talk about it here because it's it's. I think they show a lot of it here. Um, they do, they do. I have yeah, when the I have two more notes so. for this section, but yeah, let's let's just talk about the eye fucking breathtaking in hd like we have a nice sized tv and we were watching at midnight so it was completely dark i gasped when this thing started it's it's beautiful yeah we know where the cgi budget went for this episode um and it was uh on the eye trust me it went into this specifically it's breathtaking like the visuals of this show the way that this show can go from like run down like a couple of people in the woods in a camp to like the aurora times 18 million and it's it be the same consistent level of beautiful cinematography the whole time breathtaking it's so good this is everything that the really colorful cinematography in rise of skywalker wanted to be and that is my controversial statement for the episode up next bihaz realizes that lieutenant gorn is working with the rebels and denounces him as a traitor at the elkenzi airbase several tie pilots climb into their tie fighters corporal kimsey and his men discover gorn and his associates loading payroll cylinders into their freighter a gun battle breaks out between kimsey's men and the rebel infiltrator Gorn is killed by one of the soldiers. Cassian enters the cockpit but is attacked by an Imperial soldier who holds him in a headlock. During the struggle, the soldier is shot by Nemec. Terramin attempts to reach Vel but is killed by a blaster bolt. And once Vel and Skeen have boarded the freighter, Cassian flies the freighter through a launch tunnel and into the comet-covered sky. So remember I mentioned at the top of the episode uh, that we we do see stormtroopers this episode? I, You know what? I wasn't sure quite where it was in the episode, but now that I've read my little recap, I'm like, 
Oh, now I they're, get it. They're in Alkenzie Air Command. You yep, can very you briefly see stormtroopers, very small, walking around as the TIE pilots are getting into their TIE fighters. Uh, Rip Gorn. Yeah, and, and Terramin. I was like, damn, we got both we'll, of them. We'll get to Terramin in a second. Well, Gorn, I want to bring up Gorn specifically because Gorn was so fast that I missed it the first time we watched this episode. Uh, yeah, it did happen pretty to the quickly. TV screen. It's fast. He's shot. He's on the ground and then we don't have another shot back to him and it's so quick and then like Terraman dies like 2.2 seconds later and like what's interesting about both their deaths somebody pointed this out both of them are Imperials or former Imperial defectors both of them were fighting against the Empire both of them were trying to leave the Empire both of them die in an Imperial uniform which is an extra layer of sadness to proceedings yeah it is kind of sad also I I guess also, the uh, Behaz dies too, <laughs> or he has an attack or something. But Behaz has like a heart attack, yeah, yeah. right at the crucial moment. Which, of, of course, and again, I feel like, yeah, I, I, that could have been handled so much better. I, I like that he wasn't like his non-intervention is what allows the gun battle to break out. But I feel like even here's the thing: if they hadn't had the joke about the belt earlier, because the way they've set up this heart attack is he is not used to working as hard as he and they're forcing him the rebels kill him essentially by working him to death that they force him to load things in there and he's breathing heavily he's sweating and then in a moment of intense stress you know his heart basically gives out and i feel like if we haven't had the belt joke earlier this might have landed a little bit better for me but as it stood i was like I see what you're doing here, but I don't think you quite got it. That's just my read on that particular scene. We don't find out what happens to his family, though. Yeah, that was weird that they didn't show. I mean, I'll get to it in like the next bit when Cinta leaves. But I realize that, yeah, we don't really know. There's a non-zero chance that Cinta just executed them all. Yeah, we don't we don't know. We don't know. Because how else did she get out? Like, we don't really know what she I mean, she unless she just left, she could have just left bound. them yeah. there. That's true. That's one. They have, however, seen their faces. And if I was Senta, I maybe would think twice about leaving people alive who've seen our faces. I'm just saying, there's a non-zero chance. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I take her as like a child executor, but th- theoretically, Vel did say that if you cooperate, we'll let you go, or your family go at least. So I'm assuming maybe the plan, maybe she's like, ah, let them go, you just escape kind of thing. I don't know, we'll see. Or we won't see. Well, I, I, I imagine we'll probably find out at some point. During the ascent, Nemec is crushed by several cylinders. Skeen and Vel manage to free Nemec, but his back is crushed. Vel sedates Nemec with a med spike. Andor asks for hyperspace coordinates as they fly through the comet-covered sky. They are pursued by TIE fighters. Nemec guides Cassian as he flies the freighter. The TIEs attempt to keep up with the freighter but are struck by meteor debris. On the ground, a disguised Cinta exits the base, walking past pilgrims and Imperial soldiers who are mesmerized and awed by the comet display. In space, Skeen says that Nemec is the reason they are here and they have a doctor built into the plan. Andor asks how they will get to the doctor. It has been pointed out online, and I want to echo it because I think it's hilarious. The fact that Nemec, uh, the little like space rebel, little space communist there, is literally crushed to death by capitalism. The money or whatever. <laughs> the, the money literally crushes him to death. Uh, which it's, 
his the injury is interesting because again it's the flaws in the plan right nobody thought that it was going to take off really fast and it was going to blow them backwards and that things weren't going to be like tied down nobody thought about this they just went and that lack of being able to think about every facet of the plan they weren't prepared for that and Nemec wasn't prepared for that and he ultimately got crushed by it Speaking of uh, speaking of Nemet, when he started saying climb, I need you to know that I lost my mind at several points during this episode. This is the loudest gasp that got from me when he started saying climb over and over again. I did notice because I only noticed this post watching it, obviously. Like I didn't realize it in the moment like you did. But when I was watching it, I was like, uh, OK, like, I didn't think about it. But then when I saw online the reactions to it, I was like, oh, interesting that some of the last words that he said to Cassian were some of the last words somebody else said to him. Yep. Now it's not the last word that that someone else says to him. That would be goodbye. Uh, That was fact checked by people. However, yeah, that is a direct callback to Rogue One. Nice. And hurts me deep inside my soul. Uh, My next note is seriously, this is stunning. Just when they're inside the eye and they're flying around in what is essentially this like rainbow meteor shower, absolutely incredible visuals. They're unique, they're colorful, they're engaging, there's something we've never seen before. It's absolutely breathtaking. Yeah, they did a really good job. And I, you know what's funny is if if I were to have a lot of confidence in the Disney parks, um, I would say that this would be a ride uh on in the disney parks you could like it's the heist ride or whatever with cassian like and then this would be part of it replace replace the millennium falcon corellia coaxium run with this shit give me this shit or just turn this into a night roller coaster or something or put this put this in star tours or do like a space mountain oh my god can you imagine if they did like a space mountain overlay like they do hyperspace mountains sometimes oh my god can you imagine that would be good eye of aldani actually now that i think about it you're right this would make a really good star tours thing like our our overlay or whatever you know what i mean like how they always change the mission or whatever like oh yeah this would be a great little throw that in there to be like oh let's do a mandalorian one let's do an andor one let's do a kenobi one let's just throw all this and or one to actually fly through the eye of Aldani. I I noted in my notes, it's it's interesting because, you know, the question I have is, does Skeen actually care about Nimic at all? Because if you watch this scene in the context of knowing what comes later, it is more clear that Skeen really is just manipulating them to put the ship down and not drop the money off. Yes, I think up until this point, he cares. I want to say like, or does he know. or does he attach himself to Nimic because Nimic is the most trusting member of the group? You know what it is? I think I you know what I think. I think it's more so he now that we know what we know I think he sees Nemec as either moldable or like influential enough to where he could pull him to his kind of side I think in in the case of like having to choose sides he'd be like look I looked out for you the whole time like I was always there for you kind of thing so you should kind of repay me by helping me out kind of thing I feel like that's kind of where it was going possibly like he just needed an extra vote on his side kind of and I feel like Nemec would have chosen his side theoretically or if, I'm not if sure. he was gonna double cross them and be like give me several million of these credits and let me walk away Nimic probably would have been like yeah no you should let him go but I don't know I don't think Skeen cared about him that much I think Skeen just latched onto him as somebody that was easily manipulated and easily trusting like he trusts Cassian immediately 
So I think part of the Skeen's hostility toward Cassian was in part because he worried that Cassian would figure out, you know, that he wasn't as into the revolution as everybody else. So watching this scene with Skeen now where he's making this impassioned plea for them to go to the doctor, it's it's new context to this scene, which I, I really like. Up next, Nemec is treated by Dr. Quadpaw. Outside the hut, Skeen and Cassian wait. Skeen tells Cassian that the vault is worth 80 million credits and proposes splitting the profit and hiding it. Andor realizes that Skeen is not a genuine rebel. When Andor questions Skeen about his brother, Skeen reveals that he made up the story. Disgusted, Andor shoots him with a blast door. Despite the doctor's efforts, Nemec succumbs to his injuries and dies. Cassian enters the hut wielding a blaster and offers to buy the doctor's ship. Cassian reveals that Skeen is dead and that he wanted to take the money and leave them behind. Vel doesn't believe him and Cassian demands his share of the money but offers to leave the freighter and the stolen payroll. He says that he is done and also returns the Kwadi signet. Before Andor leaves, Vel confines him to take Nemec's manifesto. Do you want to tell us who's playing Dr. Quadpaw? Yes, so Dr. Quadpaw is played by Aiden Cook, an English puppeteer and actor who has worked as a creature and droid performer on The Force Awakens, Rogue One, and The Last Jedi. And there's also two other people helping out, which are Paul Warren and Matthew Lyons. Well, yeah, they got a lot of arms, so, you know, you got a lot of There's a lot of arms there. there. <laughs> Yeah, so fuck Skeen. Yeah, That's we were bullshit. We felt so bad for him last time. So we had such analysis for him, and then it's like all thrown back. And it's in our like, oh face. no, I made it up. Well, it's here's the thing, right? Because Skeen is an awful fucking person, and there's a sweet spot when you're lying about tragedy. There's a sweet spot you want to hit where the tragedy is just bad enough that people feel bad for you, but not quite bad enough that you've pushed it too far. And Skeen is enough of a bastard that he has picked something he probably knows happened and just assigned it to a brother, a made-up brother, which is really scummy and shitty to do. Where Skeen has taken actual despair and actual desperation by people living under the fascist regime and has twisted that to serve his own ends, which is disgusting. And I am very glad that Cassian shoots him. It was immensely satisfying both times I watched this episode. I also think that, you know, what would have even made it even stronger? I mean, I was already strong to begin with because they made us believe he had a brother and all this stuff. It would have been even stronger had he said it was his sister. And then that would have really set so, Cassian off. Oh, yeah, because, well, no, because that is actually what sets Cassian off is that he lies about like a sibling. When he says he doesn't have a sibling, Cassian's like, okay, because you can interpret that scene is Cassian takes him out because he's a horrible person and he's a threat or you can interpret it as he managed to hit Cassian's exact emotional trigger to make Cassian shoot him yeah I but that's why I was thinking like it's I think it's still an emotional trigger trigger because he does say brother or you know brother slash sibling I just think it might have been just a little bit more I guess on the nose slash effective if he had said sister to begin with the line. Oh, this is not this is not rings of power we are not gonna I know be I know that we're not gonna on be the that nose exactly. with our dialogue and that's Dan Gilroy's writing right it's it's a little more a little more subtle than that and you can analyze and look at it at a lot of different ways uh what I find interesting about Skeen is remember I mentioned at the top of the episode Nimic on the sort of 
pulling Cassian toward the ideal, idealized side of things. Here we have Skeen pulling him completely the other direction. Completely pragmatic, completely looking out for himself. And Nemec ultimately ends up giving his life so that they can escape. And Skeen tries to run off and gets shot for his trouble. So I think here we've seen sort of what Cassian could become in Nemec. And we also see what Cassian could become in Skeen. And the choice of whether he's going to be a Nemec or a Skeen is going to be a question that's going to follow us for the rest of this season. Speaking of Nemec, Rip Nemec. I know. It was sad because honestly, I thought with, I genuinely thought he was going to survive. I didn't think he was going to succumb to the injuries. I genuinely thought that I, I saw the, the skiing part happen. Like that makes sense to me, like that they killed him. That's fine. But I thought he was going to come back in and be like, hey, look what happened. Skeen was going to betray both of you guys, you know, and then Nemec was going to be like, no, you're lying. You know, Vel was did that already. She was kind of like, no, you're lying. That's not true. And he's like, yeah, trust me. I kind of felt like Nemec was going to get, you know, basically robot legs or something because that's just what Star Wars does. Uh, That's for people with money. And even though they have all this money, and this is part of the tragedy of it, even though they have all this money because of the nature of what they do, they can't go see a like really good doctor. They have to go to this random doctor in this random backwater. Yeah. I I mean, I felt bad for Nemec, but I think what this scene is setting up or what it's supposed to do is setting Cassian on his path because not only did he see Nemec as like this idealist thing, now he has his manifesto. So he's theoretically going to read this manifesto and then this is what's going to set him in on his path to becoming a true rebel. The radicalization of Cassian Andor. I also want to note in this scene uh, that we do get another Star Wars swear. Uh, We get the word bastard introduced. Ah, okay. I do believe that is the first time that I can recall it having been used. Now, I hear a lot about bastards lately because I've been replaying the Dragon Age games and uh, rereading the Song of Ice and Fire books and watching House of the Dragon. Uh, But it was not a word I expected to crop up in this show. Yeah, we don't have a lot of them in... We don't have a lot of quote-unquote bastards in Star Wars. Everybody kind of, no one's like of a royal lineage to where we're like, oh, that's a child out of wedlock. You know what I mean? Like, it's not necessarily like a, I don't know, it's interesting. I'm trying to think of them, but nope. So that word is in the Star Wars lexicon now. So at the end of all of this, we need to ask the question, does the heist rule apply to this? And I am going to make my case that yes, the heist rule applies here. They told, even with the subversion in the middle of it, they told us the plan, plan went off the rails basically immediately. I would call this a failure. Because because no one survived. (laughs) Half their people, half their people died. Cassian is gone. Senta is still on Aldani. Vel is alone with the money on the random planet. The heist, even again with the subversion to where there were parts of the plan they didn't tell us, from the beginning, it was already very shaky. And then when they got into the gunfight in there, at that point, things had gone completely off the rail. So I would say... My ultimate verdict is that Andor does follow the heist rule, which is why you never, ever, ever trust any time a piece of media tells you the heist plan without showing it to you at the same time. Except if you're Thor the Dark World, because that movie is incompetent and breaks the heist rule. Go listen to Marvelous Divas. It is an excellent podcast by our friends over at Dark Side Divas. Finally, 
At the ISB central office on Coruscant, Major Partagaz summons all the ISB personnel for an emergency meeting. At the Imperial Senate, Senator Mon Mothma urges a fact-finding committee into the blockade of the Gorman, but is ignored by the other senators. Elsewhere, Luthen serves a customer at his shop when he hears news about a massive rebel attack on Aldani. In private, Luthen laughs with joy at the rebel victory. So we'll, we'll get to the Imperial Senate scene in just a second, but my, my note for the ISB scene is, um, what is a planetary emergency retaliation plan? Because that sounds real ominous. I mean, so like I said earlier in the episode, this last section is definitely could have been a cold open theoretically to the next arc, which I'm assuming is some kind of the jumping off point, right? The ISB stuff is going to be like, okay, now we're going to get really heavy into ISB stuff for the next couple episodes. Right. Absolutely. Uh, And I, because they're involved now, because Deidre was right. You should have listened to Deidre, part of guest. You should have, because now we're going to get into that next episode where she's going to be like, I told y'all so. And they were like, yeah, but we kind of already knew this was going to happen. Like, no, you didn't. Yeah, we also see from the trailers that she's she's going to Ferrick, so nothing good will come of this. Okay, let's talk about some details I noted in the Imperial Senate scene. Go for it. Okay, so obviously this is my favorite scene in the entire episode, uh, mostly just because Mon Mothma was in it. Uh, But I think there's some interesting things to note about the Imperial Senate here, because this is our first look at the Imperial Senate. And there's a few things that I wrote down that I want to point out. Most of the Senate pods are empty. The lights are off. The ones that the lights are on, remember we noticed from the trailer, Bradley, they're all humans. Right. So all the alien pods have been shut down and all the human pods are still active with senators in them. So it's all the alien planets. They've shut their pods down. Uh, You know what else is empty, Bradley? Did you notice what very conspicuously is empty? No. The chancellor's pod. Oh, the center one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in session. No one is presiding over the session. Masameda is not there. Slymore is not there. Palpatine's definitely not there. No one from the Emperor's office cares enough to actually show up to this. Uh, I like here that there's, with what Mon is saying, and the point of the scene is that Mon gets interrupted by the news of the Aldani heist. But I find what she's saying extremely interesting. Not just because she mentions the Gormans, again, really driving home that that's going to be a thing, but the way that she is attempting to use the system and that she's attempting to use an outdated system. Because she's trying to go through the Imperial Senate and that might have worked in the Republic days. That's not going to work here, but she's still trying. Because the thing about Mon is she really believes in democracy. She really believes that if she pushes hard enough for a fact-finding committee or a temperate bill, that that's going to solve the problem. It won't. And she's going to learn that it won't. But I find it interesting that she's still attempting to use that system. Do you have any notes on this scene? Or are you just going to let me talk for five minutes? I mean, this is your moment. This is, I mean, this is my moment. This is not mom off a minute, but this is, you know, you you definitely care more about her talking for like two seconds than most people. So I have to give you your time. But um, I actually, I like it. I cut you really have again. I had one. The scene is like 45 seconds. I had one, two, or I had one, two, three, four, five separate notes on this scene. And and I had to cut at least two. That's totally fine. Uh, I am, I am mentally broken as a person. Like I'm, I am not okay. Uh, My final note here is Stellan Skarsgård's acting in the final sequence 
unbelievable. The way he like barely holds on until he gets back and then he laughs. And then right at the very end before the credits roll, he stops laughing. Like he has this elation of victory. And then like the whole thing deflates. I do like and how he gives himself a second though. Like he gives himself he one gives second. He gives himself yeah. that little moment before that the reality of of sinks in. So good. So my final thoughts in the episode, incredible. Um, two episodes worth of tension uh, building up to this final moment. Uh, you know, in the moment in those episodes, I wish we had gotten all three, but now we have all three. Absolutely worth it. Uh, absolutely just incredible stuff. Visuals, unbelievable. Pacing, unbelievable. The writing... Star Wars has no business being this well-written. No business being this well-written whatsoever. Um, I will say I looked somebody did say what the structure of the rest of the season is going to be episode seven is going to kind of be a standalone uh episodes eight nine and ten are an arc and then 11 and 12 are like a two-part finale so i'm definitely excited for us to, to to have a little break from the arc i think it'd be nice to have an episode that sort of stands on its own uh definitely diving into like the final we're in the back half we're running out of trailer footage we're running out of trailer footage i, I was gonna say we're at the halfway point of the season so but you, you know what we haven't seen either i hyper analyzed this trailer the one of uh her at the dinner party it's two separate dinner parties that she's at oh so so we haven't had there's two events because perrin's wearing two different outfits between the shot there's a shot of perrin in blue and then it cuts to a wider shot and perrin's in the background and he's in gold so this is clearly two separate events this happened. or he or he's just dramatic and likes a costume change halfway through dinner i mean we don't know but like you know <sighs> i mean you're probably gotta, right but i'm just gotta kidding. hate um, that man uh yeah but... we, once again once again we haven't seen the dinner parties uh, but yeah, I'm, this is a solid halfway point. Yeah, We've been sure. on a great journey so far, and I'm really excited to see all the stuff they didn't want to show us in the trailers. And I feel like we're going to start to really get that in the next two episodes. I feel like the next one, I, mean, I, I would guess that the next episode will bookend the rest of the trailer footage, if not like a, a, a solid part of it. Um, and then we're going to move on to stuff we don't know. Because if you're right, if this is like a standalone episode next week, then it's going to be very much, I, I'm going to call it the Coruscant episode. I feel like we're generally, Please. I think we will get a break Please from Cassian. I think that's, the, I think Coruscant that's kind of what episode. they're going with. We might get honest. I mean, he'll show up, but I wonder if this is going to be the break from Andor. I feel like, you know, he is kind of going to be like on the run slash doing his own thing. Um, And then this episode will be like the culmination of like, let's see what the other characters were doing on course on this whole time or like what we need to see more of them doing. I think it'd be interesting to do an episode of like Cyril and Deidre trying to unravel what happened on Aldani and Ferex and then also Mon at the same time realizing what Luthen's been up to. I think that would be a really, really interesting episode to see. Do you, do you have any other final thoughts, Bradley? Um, oh, just overall that, you know, this was a gorgeous episode. I will say that, it, like visually gorgeous. Um, but I also like, you know, the characters as well that we got that survived at least. Um, <laughs> I got to uh, show rip us more. Rip Gorn, Rip Nimic, Rip Terraman, Burn in right. Hell scheme. Right. So I, I'm sad that, you know, we lost the Rebels that we did, but... 
I'm glad that the ones that I knew would survive did survive. And because that means either, you know, we're going to get more of them this season or more of them in other media, which is great. So I um, love my lesbians. I'm glad that they survived and I hope to see them again soon. Alrighty. Well, that's it for this week. We will be back next week for episode seven. In the meantime, you can check out For Light and Dice, a High Republic TTRPG podcast that I am on. Uh, and then Bradley, uh, go ahead and run the socials. Thank you for listening to Gold Squadron Gaze. Did Charles fuck something up? Send us a message at goldsquadrongaze at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at goldsquadgaze. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at goldsquadrongaze. Subscribe to us on YouTube at goldsquadrongaze, where we post the podcast as well as exclusive content. Please join us next week and every week for more of Gold Squadron Gaze. Where the fuck is the record? He says, like, she hasn't hit the record every fucking week. I genuinely could not find it. Year and a half. I couldn't find it for like three seconds. Okay, anyway, sorry. We're professionals.